Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Amy Alcon on the podcast. Amy is a transdisciplinary applied scientist who synthesizes research findings from various areas, translates the findings into understandable language, and then creates practical advice based on the latest science. Alcon writes The Science Advice Goddess, an award-winning syndicated column that runs in newspapers across the United States and Canada. She's also the author of Good Manners for Nice People Who Sometimes Say Beep and I See Rude People. She has been on Good Morning America, The Today Show, NPR, CNN, MTV, and does a weekly science podcast. She has written for Psychology Today, Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Times Magazine, The New York Daily News, among others, and has given a TED Talk. She is the president of the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society and currently lives in Venice, California. Thanks for chatting with me today, Amy. Thanks. And we're talking today about my current book, Unfuckology, A Field Guide to Living with Guts and Confidence. Because you were so wonderful about going through all the other things (laughs) I'd written. That's my really probably the best thing I've ever written. And I call it a science help book. That's great. I want to just, before we dive into that, I want to ask you about your book, Good Manners. Sure. Now, was that ironic that I did not say the F word in full when I read the title? Does that mean (laughs) I am a, what does that say about me? Oh, it says you're polite because at the root of manners is empathy. And you're thinking, wow, maybe I have somebody listening who would be offended by that. And you are a very empathetic person. And so you're thinking that this is a good thing. Although, you know, in private, if I were just with you at a table, I think you probably would not have a problem letting it fly because you know that I love the F word. Yes, you love it. Okay, so I want to let's dive into your new book, which is so fascinating and helpful for lots of people who suffer from crippling anxiety or low self-confidence, a lot of things, you know, that they want to undo with themselves. 
Now, a key theme running through the book is that we have what it takes to be empowered and to be authentic, and it's just in hiding. Could you please unpack that sort of in hiding part a little bit? Well, I actually just want to take on authentic first because um, I, I actually tell people that they should be inauthentic because the way that we are, you know, if we're wimpy, you don't want to be authentically wimpy. You want to pick values and be authentic to the values you choose. So rather than just being authentic to what you came in with and maybe you're, you know, like maybe you're a liquor store robber or, you know, you want to just be a person that you choose to be, you want to choose to have courage, et cetera. So basically what I say about having what it takes and being in hiding, it's that the key to the book is that action is the way you correct or you transform yourself. You transform yourself through action. And this is a new idea. It's actually sort of not a new idea because William James in the 1800s came up, he, he was sort of the, the person who got this started. But what I say is the mind is bigger than the brain. So that action changes emotion. It's far more efficient than the way therapists suggest you do it, which is by coming back to them, buying them an island, whining about your problems every week. And that doesn't change you the way action does because action actually over time rewires the brain and our default behavior from being wimpy to being powerful. That's interesting. I mean, how do you relate that to the growing literature on embodied cognition? Well, this is basically what my book is about. I know, I know. I asked it for a reason. You read the book. Um, (laughs) I'm all about translating these science words, embodied cognition. That sounds so complicated. Basically, action drives character. That's the essence of that, that it is far more efficient to change through acting than just by thinking. And I find that so fascinating. And I actually, I'm the best testimony to the fact that it works because I was a loser with no friends until I was 15 and then went to New York and became an enormous suck up and had one real friend. And I decided I should change. And I did this through action, although I didn't know any science then. I was just completely desperate and reached into the sky and thought, I'll try doing this. Mm. And doing was the key rather than just thinking. Yeah. So what is your definition of a loser? Um, well, me. <laughs> is there an objective definition? Can we scientifically well, operationalize I, well, that term? I, I, didn't, I didn't do that in the book, but I think that we all know what a loser is. Basically, I had no friends. Nobody liked me. I was picked last for being picked last for kickball. You know, like if there wasn't anybody with a broken leg, you know, I was picked last. And if there was somebody, maybe if they had two broken legs, I would then, I mean, it was like I was in front of them, but they were basically it. Kids chased me. They bullied me. A group of girls, this is sort of rare for women to do or girls to do. They physically hurt me in junior high school. I mean, I just was the one nobody liked, nobody respected. And then when I went to New York. You mean girls can be mean? Oh, God. (laughs) Mean is a vegetable for some girls. Um, So, and then I got to New York. And so what happened was actually at 15, I joined my temple youth group and I didn't have my history. So you travel with this history when you go to the same school and then the same high school with the same kids. Everybody just has decided you're a loser and you can't wash the cooties off of you. But going to my temple youth group, nobody had known me or knew my history or my pedigree as a loser. So people treated me well. And it was so weird. But when you get your first friends in life after not having them for 15 years, you cling to them like a shipwreck rat on driftwood. And so I that's how I became a suck up. You know, basically, 
I would do anything for anybody. And Mm -hmm. I had this history in New York of helping everybody move. And then when it was time to help me move, they were all in bed with a hangnail or going to the Hamptons. Yeah. You know, I've noticed a pattern that, you know, the more I try to please people, the more backfires, in fact, the less people respect me. Exactly. And there's a difference. So I write about altruism and kindness to strangers in good manners for nice people who sometimes say, oh, bleep. Um, oh, no, you're bleeping it, Amy? Because you did. See, I'm, I'm a monkey. See, monkey do. We're all monkeys. But, you know, I, I write about how we need to pre-plan to do kindnesses for strangers because we didn't evolve around strangers. We sort of don't recognize them. But once you pre-plan to do that, then you start doing these daily small kindnesses. It's really nice. You feel good. It's actually in your self-interest to do this as well as our society's interest. So that's a choice. So you're being powerful in pleasing people. But the pleasing people you're talking about is what I did. I mean, it was like, you know, every day, countless times, I would do things because I wanted people to like me. I wanted them to not be angry at me because I overperceived what would happen if they didn't like me or were angry with me, what it would mean to me. And that's the difference between pleasing, you know, sort of by because you're forced to do it because you're afraid and pleasing by choice. Pleasing by being, I don't mean really pleasing, it's really being kind and altruistic and choosing to be generous Mm. to people. Yeah, I like that. There's sort of like an insecure form of altruism and a a growth-oriented form. I love how you put that. (laughs) That put a lot of things within that framing of like the D realm versus the B realm, like as Abraham Maslow talked about, deficiency realm, deprivation. Is it coming from a place of deprivation or a place of growth and being? And, you know, we could put a lot within that framework, actually. The Barbara Oakley's notions of pathological altruism seem relevant here as well, right? Yes, I write about those where pathological altruism is altruism that harms often both the person who's doing the supposed kindness and the person they're doing it for. So an example would be your brother is trying to get off drugs and he says, whatever you do, don't let me, don't give me any money. And then when he's jonesing, he cries and cries and says, please, please, please give me money. And you do because he's crying when the truly kind thing to do, the non-pathologically altruistic thing to do would be to say, no, I'm going to lock you in my closet and I'll slip plates of food under the door, but you're not getting any drugs. I mean, there, that's probably a felony, but um, forget that for a yeah. second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's talk for a second about how your mind works, Amy, because I find trying to follow you difficult sometimes. <laughs> and, I hope not here. <laughs> no. Well, even a little bit here, I think it's part of your creativity. As you know, I, I'm really interested in, um, in how people who have different ways of thinking about the world, how that could be a positive thing. And you know, you've been no stranger to talking about your own personal experiences and its relationship to the research you do. You have this whole section in your book, you say a coming of rage story, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> How does your own sort of kind of unique style of thinking play a role in this and as a child and quote, feeling like a loser? Well, my thinking is mainly, I thought you were talking about ADHD, which- I was, that was definitely okay. part of it. Yeah. Okay. But I don't like um, labeling, you know. Well, no, but see, I don't like that because it's called a disorder. And it's also, it's so stupidly named because it's called attention deficit disorder. And a person who has this does not have a deficit of of attention. You have too much attention. It goes, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. I was looking for that word. It goes all over the place, basically like a bunch of squirrels on meth running all around. And so Adderall helps those little squirrels sit down so I can focus on my work. 
And I find it really important to say that I'm on medication because people, there's such stigma with that. And it's like, oh my God, I can take this tiny little blue pill and it makes my work day go better. Why not? It doesn't have bad side effects for me. This is fantastic. And so basically ADHD, it is a thing. My mind's like a super ball in a sense. And so it makes connections between these different areas in science. I'll be thinking about one thing and my mind will go say, hey, wait, look how that relates. Look at that relationship to that. Oh, wow. And so this is part of what I do that I think very few other people do, which is that I synthesize science from a broad base, from all across science, so neuroscience and evolutionary psychology and clinical psychology, and I'm versed in all of them. And I could have gotten a PhD, but I found it very unappealing to narrow cast the way professors have to where you're pretty much, you know, you're a unique individual in that you sort of go off to different areas. But most people have to stay. If they're in happiness, they can go out to gratitude and humility and forgiveness. But they can't go out to neuroscience and all these other areas and look at hormones. And so that's the thing that's part of this. And see, I'm doing this. I, I sort of ramble. I've like changed. It's like no, strings of pearls. You're, 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 you're the, the, one, the one word I, I would use to describe is you're untethered. <laughs> yeah, untethered. I like that. <laughs> like your book, Ungifted. Untethered. See, it's yeah. both, both cases a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you are with your science writing, right? I mean, you're not right. tethered to a specific paradigm. Right. And in fact, my what I do is, I just wrote about this yesterday. I'm never impressed by the idea something is peer-reviewed. I write with a sort of, sure. and, and look at the science with a sort of terror that I'm missing something. And so that's a very helpful place to come from. Maybe it comes from some sort of insecurity, because there's also this credentials thing where people don't value as you as much if you don't have that rubber stamp. I mean, I'm not an idiot. I could get a PhD. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just you do the work, you know, you don't tell your professor to fuck off too often, you yeah. know. And so, but the thing is to have this other path is sort of exciting. I'm sort of an intellectual entrepreneur and I like that and creating other things, creating a new Thing out of all this science I synthesize is to say, here's what the science means in real person language, not in some kind of obfuskies. And then to say, and here's the practical advice out of the science. That's very exciting. And also, I have to say, one thing I'm careful about is I really am careful to not go beyond the bounds of the findings. So I'm not inventing stuff like, oh, look, this means this. Because you see this in studies too. There's oh, an MRI. Yeah an fMRI, you know, brain scan where they say, oh, look, the purple means that, you know, on <laughs> yeah. Tuesdays you walk your dog funny. It's <laughs> so like, true. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> so true. Okay. So in terms of some of these key practical things in your book that, like you said, don't go too far outside the science, but are still helpful to people. What about fear? Can you tell people how they can use fear as a tool for change? Okay. This is so exciting. What I say is fear is not just the problem. It's also the solution. And I'll take you through, there are a couple chapters in my book. I should tell you, it's called Unfuckology, A Field Guide to Living with Guts and Confidence, in case you're just tuning in the middle. So my favorite chapter is, your feelings are not the boss of you. It's not what you feel. It's what you do. So you can be afraid of something, but the fact that you're afraid, I don't see that as a reason to not do it. And I have a lot of productivity in the tips in the book. And one example is my own tip from writing, I write to a timer. Why? Because when you have a blank page, oh my God, you just want to clean out the refrigerator like six times because that blank page is so intimidating. It screams at you, you're not funny. You have nothing to say. You probably don't understand the science anyway. You know, it's screaming. Do you know and that my, rhymed? 
Oh, it did. Yeah, that was like a poem. <laughs> it's a, I do that by accident. I'm the. Uh, You're an yeah, accidental anyway. poet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I turn on a timer and I am my clock's bitch. Basically, I turn on that timer. I could type, I have nothing to say 300 times while that timer's going on. I'd use 52 minutes on, then I take a 17 minute break. So, but what happens is, and you know this, I can probably say it, Mihai. Chick sent me hi. He's the guy who did the research on flow. Um, you get into what's called a flow state where you get into the work and you're excited by it and you forget that you're working. And then these magic things happen. And an important part of this too is the breaks. The breaks, these 17 minute breaks. And sometimes I'll take longer if I'm tired because I learned to be nicer to myself. You can talk about self compassion. But during that time, what happens is, as opposed to the focused, these tight neural networks you're using when you focus on writing or translating or reading, your default mode brain processing takes over. That's this background processing. So you can be washing a dish. I just walk away and I do anything but be at the computer, wash a dish, clean a molding, something dumb. And so that's when your brain is doing some background work. And so when you come back to the computer after taking a walk or taking a shower, Suddenly, maybe you have an idea, the stuff that looked like spaghetti and muddled, and it just starts to look like, oh, wait, I see that could go there. And this is why this, it's so exciting to do that. So, but I want to get to the the full question, which is, you know, about fear, fear not being the problem. It's also the solution. And so to tell you what I did when I stood on the street in the rain, realizing in New York, while I was moving myself with this cart, the wheel fell off and you know, my computer being rained on, I realized I had no real friends and I had to change my behavior because I thought other people behave disagreeably and people like them and they respect them. Maybe if I act like those people that I will get treated as well as they do. So I started acting like my boss at Ogilvy and Mather, who was a producer. She would just, she just had this quiet confidence and I'd go to a store, you know, say they gave me the wrong change instead of being all wimpy and me. I'd put on Kathy's voice, um, excuse me, I believe you gave me the wrong change. So you can hear how I'm talking differently. I, you put sexy. on the whole person. Thank you. I wish my <laughs> voice were that sexy in real life. And so this is really important. This is what I found, even though I did this just out of desperation, what I found was people didn't treat me badly. They would do what I asked or just grumble. Nothing terrible happened. A giant claw didn't come out of the ground and snatch me and drag me under. Nothing bad happened. So I realized, wow, I get treated well. And so I used her persona as training wheels to become a person with self-respect. And eventually you just shed that and you start acting that way yourself after you do that a bunch of times. And at the root of this is something is clinical psychology. It's called exposure therapy. And it's basically exposing yourself to your fears so you see that they're ridiculous. And this is really a marvelous technique. You do this over and over. And I explain how in the book, because there are important points to this, because now we know so much about learning and memory. And if you, what I did, if you, if you look at the synthesis of all that research that I put in the book, it tells you, oh, just do this a little bit and go sleep. You know, don't think about it too much because th- just this process of acting actually changes your emotion. You don't have to think about it for it to be strong. And then you can think about it afterwards, sort of post-process it because it's stronger if you don't think about it, if you go to sleep. So the memory of your acting a certain way and not being responded to, you know, not being chased out of a store with a broom when you behave with self-respect, you learn from that over and over. That's good. And it sounds like this is different than the acting as if principle. How are they different? 
Well, okay. What's really important. So, you know, there was all this. Was that uh, a good question? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I love your questions. It's, <laughs> it's always mind candy. So if you have to remember to act a certain way, you're remembering, okay, I should stand up straight and I should talk like this. And I should, you know, hold my hands a certain way. Oh, don't dig on my nails. And and then what was I going to say? Okay, you have what's called cognitive overload. You know this well. Um, oh, cognitive yeah. overload. I your experience mind it 10 goes, times a day. <laughs> your mind basically goes, oh my God, I'm carrying like, you know, 65 fruits in my arms and I'm just going to drop them all on the floor. That's basically what happens. And so the beautiful thing about acting like somebody else, using somebody else's persona as training wheels is that. You don't have to remember anything because we can all, I mean, I'm a terrible actress, but I can act like somebody else. We can all mimic somebody, even if we do it badly. So you're mimicking their posture and their voice and all these things. It's a package deal. So all you have to remember is that pitch you wanted to give the guy about your startup. And you're much more likely to be able to do that with confidence to retain your thinking than if you're remembering to do all these act as if things. It's good. I can see that difference. I should tell you, basically, I call it impersonate your way to being the real you. Yeah. Because what happens is when we're unconfident, there's a confident person. There's a possibility for that person in there and all that. Oh, my God, I'm a loser and I can't. and I'm afraid and I'm not going to. But that person just needs to start acting that way. And then we build those neural pathways where that starts being our default behavior instead of behaving like a wimp, which, however, isn't to say that you're totally cured, because I admit this in the book. I say, look, I'm like 80-20. There's 20% of me that's like, I'm a loser. They don't want to talk to me. But the 80% of me goes like, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know better than this. Come on, go talk to that person. Don't Wait, be an neither of those thought processes are particularly positive, though. <laughs> no, no, actually, but I write about I, I, this. Either I'm an idiot or, no one will, or I'm a loser. No, no, no. Actually, no. But see, the thing is, people who are self-deprecating are confident people. Either that or they're people who really I hate know. themselves. I know. I'm kind of joking. But, no, this is so cool. There's really cool research in the book by Ethan Cross um, where he talks about talking to yourself in the third person. It gives you distance. And this is a big thing in the book of, you know, the physical and the mental using metaphor like that, you know, distance, it really does play out that way in the brain. I lay out all this research that shows that, but it's so, so interesting. Think about how you talk to a friend. You've got more distance on their problem. You could be more objective. And so when I say, Amy, don't be an ass, that's more motivating to me and gets through to me better than just thinking, "Mm, I should do that. Yeah. So do you think authenticity is overrated? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's in fact not even overrated. I think it's terrible. It's the terrible. Authentic- but what if you're not a loser? What if you're authentically not a loser? Shouldn't you be well, authentic? Well, okay. Here's what I say authenticity <laughs> should be. The way I, I think you should be authentic to values you choose. And I lay out a process in the book for choosing yeah. values. And you say, well, what's important to me? And you can't choose 50,000 things because you'll forget them. The most important thing. So for me, one of them is courage, living with courage. And, and supporting freedom is another one, supporting people's rights. So these are very, very important things. And so in a moment where there's some choice of behavior, my values are very clear to me because I've written them down and, and chosen them, purposefully chosen them because we just think, oh, I'll be a good person. And that's not enough because in that moment where should I act with comp- should I act with courage? It doesn't you don't have an answer then. Like, should I be a good person? Well, yeah. <laughs> that's too vague. So I yeah. tell people to specifically choose your values. 
Yeah, I do like that. And people do tend to feel most authentic when they are acting in line with their chosen values. So that is, the research does bear that out. Right, because we don't want to admit that we're, you know, a wimpy loser. Right. We actually, uh, there's an authenticity bias where we tend to include all the most positive aspects of ourselves as the authentic part of ourselves. And all the other stuff is not really us, which is actually objectively not true. It is all part of you. (laughs) Right. But see, I talk about this too in the book about accepting the whole of you. And that's one of the great things. So I'm 54. And one of the cool things when I've done readings and things, I keep, I always say, I'm socially awkward. I just say it like that. I am. I'm the one at a cocktail party. No, I never know. I never know when to leave a conversation or how to leave a conversation. You know, and I read online, oh, how do you leave a conversation? I'm still really bad at it. So there's part of me that's sort of uncool, that's desperately uncool. But um, I accept that with all of me. And I love, there's some research by Kristen Neff that I really like. She has these points of, you know, what it takes to have self-compassion. And one is, seeing your failings as a thing that connect you to other people. It's like, oh, I'm, so, you know, I'm socially awkward and other, everybody's flawed in some way. And so if you can look at, look at it that way, that's a nice way to be able to tell yourself, look, I accept me. I accept me for all the weird things I do because they come with the cool things like the ADHD mind, the Super Bowl that bounces around and finds cool things that maybe other people wouldn't because they're more quote unquote normal thinkers. I really like that. That sounds like this recent distinction I saw in the psychological literature between a self-abasing form of humility and a more appreciative form of humility that is very conducive to health, where you accept and uh, you accept all of yourself and your limitations, but you don't you don't diminish yourself. There's a healthy form of humility. Right. I think that's really important. Mark Leary and Sonia Lubomirsky and a few others have been doing work in that area. And I just love that because being humble, you have to be big. It's like apologizing. You have to be a big person to be truly humble, to be humble in a way that's healthy rather than self-abasing, rather than self-hating. That's exactly right. Yeah. Or even submissive. Right. Yeah. Great. So uh, let's, uh, I think naturally the uh, topic that follows from this is self-esteem. Oh, I love that. I know. And I know that you love that. And you've really synthesized that the wide literature on that. Could you please talk about self-esteem and some of Mark Leary's conceptualizations of it? Yeah, it's so interesting. So we think of self-esteem as I like me. Do I like me? But this actually doesn't make any sense in an evolutionary way. What would have been the function of I like me? So you do something really stupid and you still like yourself. That doesn't stop you from doing the really stupid thing. What Leary says He looks at this and says, basically, self-esteem is our appraisal of other people's appraisal of us and then our feelings in the wake of that. Now, this would be what we call adaptive in evolutionary psychology, because if everybody likes you and thinks you're great for what you're doing, you want to keep doing that. If, however, nobody likes you and you're on the verge of being thrown out of the group, which would have been a death sentence in the time in which our brains, our minds that we have now, our psychology now evolved, you want to defer. You want to, you know, sort of slink around and be very defer, you know, act with great deference to the people who are powerful so you won't get your butt kicked or ass. Sorry, I forgot we weren't, weren't on the radio. And so basically self-esteem is other people's thoughts of us and the feelings that they lead to arise in us and then how we act in the wake of that. So that makes sense. It's adaptive. And what Patrick and Ellis say, this is Lee Kirkpatrick, they say that self-esteem is domain-specific. So what this means is you could be great socially, 
but not so great in a work environment. So you would have high self-esteem because it's a measuring tool. It's a measuring tool of how you're thought of by other people and how you should act in the wake of that. So you have high self-esteem in socially, but not in the workplace where you need to ramp up your game. Yeah, that makes sense. And it seems like the need for belonging is intimately tied up with all that. But there's ways of us overriding that, right? There's ways of having a secure self-esteem that isn't so dependent on the evaluations of others, right? Well, I think that we are always going to be concerned with other people's appraisal of us, but I think it helps to understand- Do you care that much about what other people think of you? We all do. We can't help it. That's our psychology. To look under the hood and see that, you can think, oh, and then to understand something else that's important, and that's we're living in modern times with an antique psychological operating system. It's basically perfect for the time Speak when we were running around. Speak for yourself, running. Amy. <laughs> with loincloths, and, but now we've got iPhones and drones, but that hasn't changed. And so an example I give in the book is that you know if you were in a small band of people you know, in your loincloth a long time ago, you in your hunter-gatherer band, you ask a girl out and she humiliates you. Well, that's your history forever because you're not going to be in a very different group of people. It's like the same 25 to 50 maybe for your whole life. So this is really bad. So, and you could be thrown out of the group if you're not liked well. You know, this was really a costly thing. But now we still have that same psychology, but we live in this big, modern, transient world. So you go to a bar, you ask some girl out, she humiliates you. Everybody sees, oh, how horrible. That is horrible. But then guess what? It's a big, modern world. So you can go to the next bar right down the street and just do it again. And nobody has seen what just happened. And so that's a way that understanding evolutionary psychology really helps us get around the sort of, you know, the stuff that blocks it puts up for us. Great. So that means I can get rejected 40 times in one night. Woohoo! If you live in a town with a lot of bars. No, see, the thing is, some girl, you know, there's going to be some girl, you know, even for a guy who has a hard time, and you're adorable, so I don't think that's going to happen. If you're a guy who's constantly getting rejected, okay, look at what you're doing. Are you hitting on girls who are, you know, you're, you're a six and they're a 12? Okay, maybe that's not going to happen. Could you maybe like a nine? You know, or Wait, can like you a, be a 12? Is that a well, part I, of the I scale? Just, you know, I love exaggeration. Or, you know, is there something you're doing? Are you coming off as too desperate? I write about Cialdini and scarcity in the book. We value what's scarce, not what's, you know, put its head in our lap in the first five minutes. And so... That's the thing, too. You know, first, if you aren't hard to get, act like you're hard to get and then become hard to get. Become a person with confidence who doesn't just roll over for anyone and act like a puppy dog, you know, thinking that you'll get a girl that way or get a guy that way. Because that's not we don't want people who, you know, are just going to roll over for us. We want people who seem valuable and a little bit out of reach. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the, the supply demand model of relationships. Right. So let's talk about shame. That's a, another uh, motion that's related to low self-esteem. People yeah. with low self-esteem tend to experience a lot of shame in their lives. This is so interesting. We have a mythic view of shame too. This idea that shame is I suck and guilt is... There was a lady at Yale who came up with this idea of what shame is. Right. And here I can look it up very fast because I, I forget her name and I just for the moment forget. See, this is the thing where, okay, I just found it. The thing is, this is the new me. The old me would have been like, oh my God, I can't remember every single no, thing that I put you've in the shown book. growth. No, right. But the new me is like, 
God, I have a bad memory. <laughs> this sucks. Okay. So what it was, it was Helen Block Lewis. She was uh, in 1971. Okay. She came up with an idea that um, shame involves a negative evaluation of the self and guilt stems from a negative evaluation of an action taken. Well, guess what? That's not supported. And um, Dan Snyder did some wonderful research on this with his colleagues at UCSB. And they found that shame is basically, they, they explain shame as an emotion program. So emotions are motivational tools. They're not just decoration for your life. So they say shame is an emotion program. It's a defensive system that evolved to keep us from getting devalued by people in our social world, like self-esteem. What other people think of us? Eek. So they say that the feeling of shame is information driven and it's brought on by the sense that other people could find out about our yicky, gross, dishonorable, unfair behavior and downgrade us reputationally because of it. So shame is basically like an inner crisis PR specialist. So recognizing this, this is really helpful because you understand that part of the reason that you feel, oh, I don't want people to see this, is that we have this emotional program in us to avoid our being downgraded by other people. So these behaviors will make you feel ashamed because they're trying, your, your shame is to protect you from engaging in actions that would cause you to be devalued. That makes sense as part of the the overall social protection system that self-esteem operates on as well. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. There are probably lots of other things. In fact, I found in my own research that imposter syndrome is another one that is related to those other two as a protection system. It's actually, we don't actually think that we're imposters. It's actually a self-presentation strategy to help minimize the impact of rejection, if that makes sense. Right. Oh, no, I agree with you on that. I've read that stuff. And I really, this imposter syndrome, I think that I thought about this the other day, that people who feel that way should look through your success. We, we tend to just see ourselves where we are and not see the little bits and pieces. That if you look back and see all the things you did to get to where you are, you know, you see that it's, you're not there for no reason. The people who promoted you are not morons. They didn't promote right. you because they were on drugs. You know, there's a reason you're there. Now, there's sometimes people who have their jobs where you think like, oh, my God, they, you know, clearly they had an uncle in the business yeah. or something. But, you know, for most people, that's not the case. You know, and it's really, really important to break things down into these small little bits and see what got you there. And to also understand, you know, part of this is our problem with failure. And I think failure is really helpful. You know, if you can say, you know what, I'm human and I'm going to fail and accept that as part of it, then you can turn it into a tool and also take risks and not say your feelings are the boss of you, not let them be the boss of you, but say, you know, I'm going to try my best. See, that's me. Courage. Courage is one of my values. So I have to try my best. And if I fail, okay, that kind of sucks. But will I be living in the gutter because I did something, I tried something that was a little scary? Probably not. So what's the worst that could happen? You know, that's something in the book too, that kind of thinking, that cognitive reappraisal. What's the worst that could happen if I fail at this? You know, a few people, yeah. a few readers will think I'm dumb or you know, whatever. I get hate mail. Something about you that I know is that you have some really enormous courage. I remember the story of getting uh, soliciting feedback from dates that you <laughs> talked about. And I thought maybe you could tell the listeners about what you did because not a lot of people would be able to do that. Yeah, um, this is a survey I did like they have in hotels. I just, I had worked on myself and gotten better in the self-respect and behaving with courage department through this thing of acting like my boss from time to time and saying, oh, wow, that works. But I was still really desperate in the love department and I was just chasing guys kind of like, you know, the way a 
golden retriever chases a hot dog down the hill with all that subtlety. So um, the guys were just like, one guy, he shook my hand at my door and like bolted down the street. You know, that was the kind of thing that was happening to me. And I thought, I can't even get sex. You know, girls can always get sex. And why am I poison ivy? And so out of desperation, but also because I think like, I think that you should make your life fun and even your problems and your failures fun. I created our date, a customer satisfaction survey, like in hotels. And I had all these points, you know, well, please fill this out. Uh, and then was your date clean and odor free? Would you go out on a date with this person again? Why or why not? You know, and I handed them all out to these guys who went to this cafe I went to where there were a lot of cute guys and also electrical outlets. I used to write there. And they all, one guy would bolt when he saw me. They all were horrified, except for one really sweet science professor at Yale, I think, in Princeton. And he came and sat down at my table and told me basically I was too eager. I took all the you know fun out of it for a guy because I did all the work and that I needed to basically you know, act like with self-respect. He didn't say that, but I knew that was the answer. I needed to do that in dating as well as in the rest of my life. And so that was a great thing that I did because I I did sort of this sort of folk version of research, you know, with a very small sample size, but it told me what I needed to know. And it was fun and made me laugh. That's awesome. I've often wanted to ask for feedback, but I've been too shy to do so. I think that's (laughs) wonderful that you just go for it. Thanks. Well, you know, you could get some horrible and hurtful feedback and people, this was before the age of social media. So um, nobody put the thing online or anything. People can Um, be so cruel now. I know. It's really terrible. It's really terrible. And so, you know, you have to be mindful of that. See if, you know, something that you do, it has potential to ruin you emotionally for a long time or, you know, ruin your career when you're thinking of doing it. Yeah. Let's talk about victimization. Now you argue that Refusing to act like a victim can be a very powerful thing. Oh, yeah. Well, basically, it's the old, your feelings are not the boss of you, and that you can be afraid to respond to somebody with courage, but that doesn't mean you should not do it. I talked about that earlier. And so people, you know, David Buss, who's an evolutionary psychologist, showed this footage. Actually, I think he talked, no, he talked about it, sorry. At an Psych conference, they had prisoners look at people a group of people, some of whom were crime victims, and they, they looked at how they walked. The prisoners all picked out the people who they would victimize as the people who actually were victimized, it turned out. And, you know, there's something to this of, you know, who behaves like a victim, and maybe that ends up making you a victim. You can't always avoid being victimized by people, but a lot of times you can simply by refusing to let them do it by saying no. You know, and at first, like saying no will be a huge and terrifying thing. But the more you say it, the more you'll see that it doesn't have terrible consequences, providing you're not being mugged in an alley and the guy's saying, give me my, give me your wallet. And right. you say, that's not a time to say no. So you're like, here, sir, would you like my, here's my American Express. <laughs> Are you a comedian as well as a applied trans interdisciplinary scientist? I thought you were just going to call me gender fluid. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm all Because I said um, trans. <laughs> no. So... Well, you know, it's. I think that this is a um, on PC thing to say, but it, you know, it's it makes sense per Jeffrey Miller's mating mind of what you know men used to show women that they've got some chops as a mate. There aren't a lot of women who are really funny and really on PC, and I'm one. Amy Dresner, who edits me, who wrote my for junkie, she's another. We both spend all day laughing, coming up with this obscene humor. 
And, um, but, but being truly funny, not cutesy funny. I hate cutesy funny. And so I've spent many years coming up with this stuff. And basically, my way of entertaining myself when I had no friends, there were two things. One was reading a million books. And the other was just sort of going places in my mind and thinking, I'd see, you know, squirrels anthropomorphized and stuff like that. My mind's always doing that. Yeah, it sounds like you've really like self upgraded your whole mind. And actually, I almost said the word system, and that actually leads into a question I wanted to ask you is, do you think having systems is better than having goals? Oh, yeah. I write about this. And um, I actually first heard about this from Scott Adams. Huh. So goals, goal is I'm going to lose weight. You know, I'm going to know is I'm going to lose 10 pounds. So and a system is I'm going to live healthy from now on. So what you can fail very easily at a goal because you had a cupcake that night. So then you suck. And what happens when you make your goal? If say that you lose 10 pounds, then what are you left with? You're left with nothing. But a system, if you screw up, if you have that cupcake, you can say, okay, I have a plan. My plan is to be healthy. I didn't do so well tonight, but tomorrow's another day. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to lift some weights. You know? And so it's a much healthier way and a much less it's self-loathing promoting way to approach problems in your life, things you'd like to change. I like that. I want to bring up a related subject too, which is small wins, which is based on research by Carl Weick. It's classic social science research. And this is a way to think about it. Say that you're a guy, I keep keep bringing up guys, but you approach some girl, you know, you're terrified. You see her every day in the cafe and you finally approach her and she's mean to you. But the great thing, the way to see this is not, oh, I failed, I suck, but you today did something different and better. You were courageous. You went up and approached that guy. How cool is that? That's a small win. So to see things that way, that helps you get up and do it again the next day. You think, okay, I succeeded. How cool. Maybe I'll have another success. Maybe I'll get a little further along. Maybe she'll only spit at me once. I love that. I love that. Uh, Small wins and also small losses cascade down as well. Like if you get rejected, like how do you deal with these setbacks so that you don't spiral downward? Well, I think also- Is that a fair be, question? Yeah. Oh, no, it's a great. I, was, I like the small losses. That's a great yeah. way of putting it. So I like looking at it that way. And actually, you know, it really sucks. First of all, to be nice to yourself because it really hurts. You know, all this stuff, the self-esteem, the shame brush, these things, we can't stop those. Those are, emotions are automatic. We can't, you know, there's no switch. I'm going to dial down my shame, you know, my shame, whereas you can turn something in your head. But So understanding that, that you're going to feel bad, but also this thing of the big world we're living in, you know, that they're, what's so great, dating's a numbers game, meeting somebody's a numbers game, go out and talk to 25 women in a week, maybe you get three dates, even if you're kind of hopeless at getting dates, maybe two of them feel, you know, okay, you're kind of cute. And the thing is, if you're bad at doing things, you know, one thing that I found when I'm bad at something, I'll sometimes mention that aloud because it takes a certain sort of confidence to say that, you know, like to say publicly, hi, I'm an author and I wrote a book on confidence and I'm socially awkward. You know, there's comfort in yes, my saying that with myself. And people, when, even if you're bad at things, this is something that connects us. Nobody wants to hear about how great you are at a cocktail party. What's funny are your stories of humiliation. You know, and so, and that's the thing to think of, you know, to, to be a person who fails at things, you know, we all do. And to understand that that person you're talking to, you know, they probably stepped in poo on the way there, you know, got in their shoe and then like got some on their tie or people don't wear ties anymore, but you get what I mean. I do. I do. People are all, they're all screw ups. We're all screw ups. 
Yeah, uh, but I also were just reconceptualizing the notion of failing. If if like, what if someone who isn't a good match for you isn't interested in you? Isn't that a win, not a failure? Oh my God, yeah. And so that that's what I was saying. I mean, technically, before. that's Making, a win, right? Like, it right. would be a failure well, if you ended up with that person. It would be. And actually, looking at the thing, if you have a pattern, if people are always rejecting you, to say, am I going for people who are? Uh, you know, who are too much out of my league, or do I need to change something about myself? A thing that guys can do is to dress better, you know, to not wear shirts made out of some kind of thing that would melt if you stuck a match on it. Whoops. Um, I think that's been know, my problem. Cashmere sweaters, get a good haircut, get shoes. There are girls or gay guy friends, not all gay guys are, you know, into fashion, but you, generally you can find a friend who's a girl or a gay guy to go shopping with you and help you pick out a few things. Spend some money. It's an investment, but you can even get stuff on eBay, you know, to have these nice, here I am, I'm a presentable guy, good shoes, really important. Girls look at that. Those things. Oh, no. And no open toes. This is something Jeff Miller did a sort of casual study on this. Um, and, and women hate, we don't want to see your hairy toe knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> FYI. I think that's a, a really wise advice. You say it's time to slip into somebody more comfortable. Can you please uh, explain that double entendre? <laughs> well, basically, this is what's so helpful and exciting about this research I pulled together in Unfocology, and it's that there is a process to living as a confident person, to having the biggest life you can, to having the best person in your life and the best job, to getting the things you want. And it's basically acting as a confident person and you start by finding some person you use them as training wheels use their persona and go out there a few times and you know be that person when you're afraid when you have to ask for something you no one will know you're doing this unless you're you're a woman you're talking like a man or something like that and you'll start to see that your fears are ridiculous that people treat you with respect that they might shrug a little or grumble a little but nobody's throwing you out you know chasing you out of the restaurant with a broom because you ask for your steak to be sent back right. and do those things. It's very, very important. I have those, those little, um, here, do this, here's a test, here's a test for yourself. And over time, you'll start to be able to do that as yourself. And you'll start to see change in who you are. It changes your, it makes changes in your brain to the point where your default behavior is no longer being a timid, fearful wimp, but being a person who's powerful. And then even those times when you feel Oh, I suck. No one wants to talk to me. That that part of you that's powerful will tell that per tell that other part. Come on, don't be an ass. Oh, I love that. Oh, you know, this was such an empowering chat today, and your book is very empowering. I just want to thank you for all the great work you do for the field and for public science communication. Thank you so much. And I want to ask everyone buy my book, Unfuckology: A Field Guide to Living with Guts and Confidence. It's science help, and it can help you change and become powerful. Yes, I will put that in the show notes. Amy, do you think we should go on the road together and do a comedy routine? Oh my God. Of science communication. We We'd be so great. We'd be so good because you're a great foil for me. And also, I mean, we really would be good at that. That'd be really fun. Okay, I'll, I'll consider it. Amy, okay, I will too. Thanks, thanks again. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. 
and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.